Hey Artemis, it's Ashley Chance. We're taking a break over the holidays and we want to revisit the most popular series we've ever recorded, a deep dive into ungulate research with the scientists at the Monteith shop. You've written to us about this series. You love the scientists. We love the scientists. There's the animals, mule deer, bighorn, moose. And I think this series was such a hit because it showed us so much about the science of some of these icons of the big game world. The more we know about these species, the richer our sporting journey. Without further ado, I'll let Marsha take it from here. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Artemis Podcast. I'm your host, Marsha Brownlee. It's hunting season and Artemis is out in the field, but we have pre-recorded a series of episodes with scientists from the Monteith Shop. It's a wildlife research group in Wyoming that's home to some of the most in-depth ungulate research in the West and to innovative thinkers on the front lines of wildlife science. The work they do is critical to ensuring conservation projects, policy, and plans are based on how wildlife are actually interacting with the landscape and grounded in scientific research. Plus, as hunters intensely curious about the behaviors of the animals we pursue and dedicated to their health and vitality, we find this research deeply fascinating, and we know you will too. Thank you for joining us for the Monteith Shop series, Chasing Ungulate Tales. Hi, welcome to the Artemis Podcast special series, Chasing Ungulate Tales with Monteith Shop. I'm your host, Marsha Brownlee, joined once again by my fabulous co-host, Jess Johnson. Hi, Jess. Hey, Marsha. I'm excited for today. Me too. Um, What's going on in Wyoming today? Oh, it's a beautiful day. I'm looking out at mountains and uh, it's the last day of rifle deer season in my area. So hoping folks were successful. Um, Also hoping that some really big bucks were successful in evading the successful folks. (laughs) (laughs) Did you say it's the last day of rifle season? Is that what you said? For... Yeah, for deer rifle in the Lander region, um, today is the last day. It's the closing day. We only have a six-day season or five-day season. It's very small. Wyoming, yeah, Wyoming does earlier hunts, I think. Our management scenarios, this will maybe feed into uh, talking about migrating and moving deer and, and things like that. We've, we've got some different sets of management scenarios around the state. Jess, I'm super excited to geek out with you about mule deer today. On our second episode in the series, our guest is Ellen Akins, whose work digs into mule deer and surfing the green wave. Hi, Ellen. Hi. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, we're well, thank you for well, I, was, I I can't put to words how excited Jess and I are to talk to you and how much we're gonna um, pick your brain about mule deer. Um, so thank you so much for joining us and sharing your knowledge with us and and honestly putting up with us. <laughs> No problem. (laughs) My pleasure. Um, Can you start by telling us where you're calling from? Um, I'm calling from Constance, Germany, where I'm doing my postdoc um, on bird migration. So I'm switching systems a bit. Um, But yeah, I'm excited to chat with everyone today. So you're uh, an alumni of the Monteith shop, right? Yeah, that's right. I um, did my PhD with um, Kevin Monteith and Matt Kaufman at the Wyoming Cooperative Fish and Wildlife Research Unit at the University of Wyoming. And when did you finish your work with them? Um, I finished my PhD in December of 2019, and I stayed for a short postdoc to wrap up some of the projects that um 
still needed to get published and things like that. Um, and then I moved to Germany in July of this year. So I've only been in Germany for a few months now. Wow. Yeah. What, a, what a time to move across countries. Yeah. <laughs> it really was quite a whirlwind experience. And I think I got lucky with the timing of different things. And um, I feel lucky to be in Germany right now. Um, and have been able to actually defend my PhD in person and um, experience that uh, kind of this it's like a, a huge accomplishment um, and it's such a nice thing to culminate with your peers and your family and everyone together and I felt really lucky that I was able to defend before this crazy pandemic started and um, yeah I feel I feel for the people that are trying to finish their PhDs now or having to defend remotely. It's just not the same experience. So I, I feel like it worked out pretty well. Can you tell us a little bit about who you are? Yeah. So um, what do you, that's such an open-ended question. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, intentionally open-ended question. Um, so you can take it wherever you want it to go. Okay, so um, I guess I would classify myself as a, as a researcher um, who's really passionate about understanding animal movement and specifically how animals make a living in a, a dynamic um, environment. And um, migration is just one way to think about that. But um, I'm really fascinated by all things related to migration. And it's been a huge passion of mine and um, something that I spent the past six years of my life trying to understand. Um, and I'll probably continue to try to understand this phenomena for the rest of my career as a researcher. Um, and I would also say that I'm a applied researcher as well. So I'm really interested in trying to understand how we can use science to um, better conserve um, wildlife movement and wildlife populations. So that's kind of what motivates me and gets me excited about yeah, all of the things that come with doing research, which is definitely a, um, it can be extremely rewarding and also full of challenges. So yeah, that's kind of who I am, I guess. Great. Um, I'm curious if you, like, could you, can you trace where kind of the origins of your interest in migration comes from? Yeah. Oh, it's such a non-linear story, <laughs> I guess. Excellent. Like, yeah, so um, after I finished my undergrad, which was in biology, I had no idea what I wanted to do. Um, I knew I really liked research and kind of like trying to figure out this puzzle of like how the world works. Um, but I, and I also liked research that had a real world application, but I hadn't quite figured out exactly like what was the right combination of um, question that was interesting and exciting to me. And then something that kind of overlapped with 
what I was naturally good at. So after I finished my bachelor's degree, I did a bunch of like short term tech jobs and things like that. And in each one of those places, I would ask different people, um, you know, what's an important skill that a lot of people need to know nowadays? And everyone would say GIS and remote sensing or, you know, something along the lines of like GIS. And so I ended up doing an internship at the Smithsonian Conservation Biology Institute to try to strengthen my GIS skills. And while I was would, there... Would you, for a just brief moment, uh, just tell our listeners what GIS is? Yeah, so it stands for Geographic Information Systems, and it's basically a way of displaying and analyzing um, data that has um, spatial components. So think of a map, think of, you know, like Google Maps or Google Earth or, you know, things of that nature where you can kind of map out and understand where different things of interest are. And um, this is useful in so many different areas from, you know, urban planning to wildlife management and all kinds of um, anything that has to do with planning where things are. Um, and and you, yeah. so you've been, I mean, I just hear about it all the time. It's an, it's an acronym we use a lot. And I just wanted to make sure that everyone hearing this podcast was up to date and keeping up with us. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, so I mean, even after I finished my bachelor's degree, I hadn't really had that much exposure or understanding of, of what this was. Um, and I basically thought it was kind of just a way of making cool maps, doing cartography, which of course is really awesome, and super cool. But I got exposed to this amazing realm of all of these things that you can do with GIS and spatial analysis and a huge um, thing that I got super excited about when I was at the Smithsonian was um, analyzing data from GPS collars. And so those are um, basically, you have a GPS in your phone that can record where you go and where you are on a map, like in Google Maps, but a big tool that's being used nowadays in wildlife research are these GPS collars where you can actually track where individual animals are going at finer and finer scales over, you know, multiple years in some cases. And so there's been this technological revolution that has opened up this huge data set. And this kind of field is called movement ecology and I got exposed to it when I was at the Smithsonian doing my internship there um, and that's kind of what led me towards migration research um, yeah very cool that's a wonderful journey to, to <laughs> be on and to hear about and um, I think there's a it's it's 
I, ironic and awesome that uh, your journey to coming to movement ecology employed a lot of movement ecology of your own. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, I lived in Arizona and then Virginia and then Wyoming and now I'm in Germany. So I've been moving <laughs> all over the place. <laughs> trying to figure out what I want to do with my life so <laughs> uh, well it sounds like you're doing it <laughs> yeah yeah now I know but it took a little while to to figure that out so um for any recent grads out there that are feeling a little bit confused just right. try out as many different things as you can and see what feels like see what you connect with the most that's kind of what I did and it's been working out pretty well so far. I I once had a, a it, back when I was working as a director at a school, one of the staff asked me some, for some advice. And I don't know, I always freeze up a little bit when that happens. But my sage advice to them was do what you enjoy doing until you don't enjoy doing it anymore and then do something else. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's really solid advice. Right? <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. <laughs> um. Can you tell us before we before we dive straight into your research uh, on mule deer migration? I would love to hear some of your favorite memories from the field. Is there something in particular uh, that sticks out in your mind as just a really cool uh, experience? Well, I guess this experience really relates pretty closely to my PhD research. But one of the coolest field experiences for me is. Um, for my PhD research, I went to these sites um, all across um, the stopover and summer ranges of mule deer to um, basically measure what plants were there and when. And this sampling went from um, April or um, like around April or May until the end of August. And I went back to these sites every single week and I was able to really connect to each one of those locations and see how drastically they can change from early spring until basically when things are starting to dry out at the, at the end of August in Wyoming. Um, and I think for me, what was so cool about this experience was that you really felt connected to the place and you could you could just see how um, the environment in the same place can change so drastically over time and how certain plants pop up and then disappear. Um, and it really helped me to connect some of these abstract concepts from my PhD research to real life on the ground, what animals might be experiencing. Um, so, for example, one of the sites that we went to was this high alpine meadow that was basically just, like, so beautiful. Um, and it was, you know, hard, pretty hard to get there, even in um, June. Tons of snow. And then as you go every week, you see, like, the snow line receding and these um, plants that... Um, pop up 
and then senesce and then other plants establish and grow and um then by the end of august things are kind of drying down and it's just a really cool to key in to a specific area our plots were these one meter um square plots where we would basically measure all the plants that were there to species level and um, quantify percent cover and just like looking at that one meter square plot and just really focusing in on it and revisiting it every week I think it really connects you to a place and helps you realize how um, dynamic the environment actually is for a lot of these animals and seeing that at such a fine scale and then thinking about how that um, plays out across really large landscapes, which is what a lot of my research is is actually about, is kind of trying to understand these dynamics in plant growth and how that plays out across large landscapes and influences how animals move. Um, so I would, I think it would be even a fun thing for people to just do that in their own backyard Mm -hmm. and like have a a square meter plot you know in a place that is maybe not like your lawn but something that's a little bit more natural and see if you can notice different plants and how their phenology changes so basically when new leaves start to grow or when you see a flower form or seeds produced and it's just really nice to connect to the kind of rhythms of the natural world um so that's so interesting yeah. it's really amazing yeah that you guys are you know you, you taught looked at as researchers of mule deer but um there's so much more like you, so much more you have to know whether it's the botany or the like you know the science behind plants and and the ecology of the place and seeing how it all fits together. It's not just like knowing about mule deer. It's about knowing about the world that mule deer live in um, exactly. or whatever wildlife you're studying. I, I think that's something that's often overlooked and um, is a really fantastic lens to view the world through. I also think it's super interesting because when you started telling that story, I think the picture that I had in my head was of a larger landscape. And then when you narrow it down to just like one square meter, the intimacy of the knowledge built up over the plants in that area and the the um, knowledge and connection to them bred by that intimacy is just uh, really cool. I'm going to do that. Yeah. I'll get back to you next year. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I would be really excited to hear um, what your experience is like thinking about that and especially doing it during a time like now with mm-hmm. COVID um, where maybe it's nice to have something that you just kind of check out every week and like can connect to um, and distract yourself a little bit with like what's going on right now um but yeah it was it was amazing for me to repeatedly go to these places and and then we went to the same places several years in a row and Mm -hmm. to see how the timing of things was a little bit different each year but that a lot of the plants that were in the sites in one year maybe they were there 
in the next year, but at a slightly different time or at a slightly different um, kind of in sync or out of sync with other plants. And it's it was it was a cool thing to connect to at this finer scale when often I'm thinking about things at a much broader scale. Yeah. Very neat. Let's segue from that. And if can you uh, take us deep into your research on mule deer migration and the green wave? And sure. Jess and I will just <laughs> geek out on you and ask you a bunch of questions. Okay, great. <laughs> yeah. So I think my research centers around this idea that um, for for deer and many other um, similar species, young emergent plant growth, which I often call spring green up, is the best quality food because this stage of plant growth um, is large enough to provide um, enough forage for a full bite of food, but it's young enough that the plant doesn't have a bunch of um, hard to digest fiber in it. So it's this kind of narrow stage of plant growth that provides the, the best quality food for, for deer, mule deer, and, and other species that are similar to mule deer. Um, and so when we think about um, spring green up and how that manifests across the landscape, um, plant growth is delayed along elevational gradient. And so there's this wave of high quality food that also moves along elevational gradients. And many mule deer across the West migrate from low elevation winter ranges to higher elevation summer ranges. So it would make sense for them to basically pace their spring migration with this progression of the green wave as it moves across the landscape. And this phenomenon is called surfing the green wave. Um, and it, it actually originated to explain the migratory movements of, um, of avian waterfowl species. So um, barnacle geese and other similar um, migratory birds that are herbivores. Um, but it only recently has been kind of adopted and tested in to explain the, the timing and pace of migration for ungulates, so hooved mammals like deer and elk. Um, and so my research focused around trying to test this idea, um, integrating the GPS collar data that tracks the uh, movements of animals with remotely sensed data. So data that is actually collected from satellites that are orbiting the earth and basically measuring how green the planet is. And so um, I pair these two forms of data to quantify how the green wave moves across the landscape um, of, of the migration routes of these animals and how well they actually match their migration with spring green up. And, and this is um, 
it's not only fascinating to me, but it, it has some important implications um, because we did find that mule deer do indeed surf the green wave and they, they choreograph their migratory movements with this flush of spring green up, which really suggests that for mule deer in Wyoming, at least, surfing the green wave is a really important part of their strategy to make a living in landscapes like Wyoming. Um, and it suggests that the migration route is an important habitat for these animals. Um, and that the ability to freely move across that corridor and use stopover sites to forage during their migration is a really important habitat that deserves our attention um, and efforts to maintain connectivity across these landscapes that animals move through. Would, would you give a brief description of like what a stopover site is like um, just a little a little more detailed description because I think that's a really fascinating phenomena of like migration isn't just this continuous line always they don't just start wake up one day and for 30 days walk straight somewhere else like I, I think the stopover sites is a really fascinating um little tidbit and if do you mind going deeper into that yeah for sure um so basically as the animals mule deer and and other migratory animals like birds use these stopover sites so um when it comes to mule deer they they spend about 90% of their time during migration in these stopover sites um foraging. So they're much smaller than um, their home ranges in on, on winter or summer range. And they're just these um, small areas along the migration route that animals stop at during peak green up and spend time foraging and eating and gaining that um, access to really high quality food. And then once the green wave kind of is starting to move, they move along their migration route to the next stopover site um, and spend time foraging and eating. And, um, and the amount of time that animals spend moving between stopover sites is relatively small compared to the amount of time that they're actually at these stopover sites. So stopover sites are really important habitat. Uh, foraging habitat for deer. Do they have like, um, do they have a certain look to them? Like, is it just sort of more flush with different plant species or, um, I, you know, I'm trying to think like, you know, if a person was driving down the road, could they be like, that, that looks, looks like, like a, a good stopover site. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm Asking for a friend. Good. <laughs> yeah, it's a good question. Um, I think it really depends because for some of these animals, they have really long migrations. And as the animal moves up in elevation, what looks like a good stopover site is really different um, depending on if you're at the beginning of the migration route and it's kind of lower elevation or if you're kind of higher up um, the what makes a good stopover site, I think, is is a bit different. But in the sagebrush system, I would say 
it it is places that are just more a little bit more lush than the surrounding area um and yeah in the system that I worked in in the Wyoming range um a lot of the stopover sites are it still in sagebrush um and those tend to be kind of the more lush habitats within. I love it I feel like I'm asking you like to write a tinder account for a deer like do you like long walks on the beach what do they look like (laughs) what's your favorite flower let's go find some really nice spring green up to munch on together (laughs) that's awesome is there is there an is there any data as to how long I mean I imagine it varies wildly but how long do they spend in uh in each stopover area well, yeah, it could be quite variable, but I would estimate like uh, a week or two, um, depending. Yeah, I, I I could look that up. There's there are definitely papers where these numbers are more exact than my off the top of my head estimates, but yeah. I think it's really interesting this this concept of surfing the green wave. Um, you know, as, as a sort of driving force, maybe not the only force, but, but, a but a driving force between a choreographed migration of mule deer. And, um, is there anything on the way back? You know, this is the surfing the green wave, as I understand it, is the spring green up. Um, I, I mean, I, they're essentially surfing the white wave down cause they're just coming down from the snow. But, uh, is there any, any data or did you guys focus mostly on the spring or, or was it sort of looking at both spring and fall migration? So my research is all focused on spring migration. Um, but maybe if you are interested, you could get Anna Ortega on this podcast. <laughs> she's a PhD student in Matt Kaufman's lab and she's studying the drivers of fall migration in the red desert to Hoback system. So um, the system where there's some of the longest distance mule deer migrations in Wyoming. And what she's finding is, yeah, snow is important and animals are also trying to maximize their exposure to residual greenness, basically. So by that, I mean, in higher elevation areas, things just stay greener for longer. Um, And so animals wanna stay up high in these greener, lusher habitats um, for longer periods of time. And they're basically just getting pushed down the mountain as weather gets worse. And so I I think what some of Anna's research is showing is that animals are trying to, um, yeah, I guess surf the the trailing or the leading edge of like a, a frost wave, basically. Mm-hmm. So um, they're basically trying to maximize that exposure to residual greenness while minimizing exposure to risky um, weather conditions and um, things that just, yeah. The more I hear about this, the more I really sympathize with mule deer. I was just angry that winter seemed to have skipped fall this year. So imagine how they feel, right? Yeah. 
it again like comes back to this idea of thinking about how much the environment changes and how dynamic these landscapes that animals move through are and how they have to deal with so many different factors that are changing all the time and um yeah it's really amazing actually to think about how well they do this um given how complex the landscape is and how much it's changing. How unreliable, it. yeah. You yeah. Know, it's, it's an early or a late snow, um, especially Wyoming, you know, we can have late spring snows that bury the sage in this like wet, crusted over awful, like heavy snow. And it can, you know, cut off I'm assuming it makes it really hard to be a deer in those areas. Um, and I just thinking about that every time that happens or, or, you know, the freak weather systems that come through or development, you know, a deer mm-hmm. goes through a stopover that then turns into a subdivision. And it's a very, it, it can happen in the year's time. Yeah. Yeah. It, and those are some things that I worked on, trying to understand as well during my PhD research. One is environmental variability in the form of drought and how drought impacts the green wave and how wild animals surf that wave. And also um, I am collaborating with another researcher, a master's uh, student, former master's student um, at the co-op Teal Wyckoff on, and uh, Hal Sawyer, Matt Kaufman on research trying to understand how energy development impacts the ability of animals to surf the green wave. So we can talk about both of those things, but the, the simple story is that in drought years, the green wave is shorter, um, so it lasts for a shorter amount of time. And the benefit that animals get from migrating is decreased drastically in, in drier years. And then when there's energy development along the migration route, this causes animals to basically um, hold up at the edge of energy development. The green wave passes them by. And then eventually they try, they move quickly through the energy development and some animals are able to catch back up to the green wave, but many are not able to do that. And so animals are facing many different threats um, when it comes to um, achieving the the foraging benefit of migration, whether it's um, variability, and weather or climate that actually changes the way that green wave move, the green wave moves across the landscape, or it's all these barriers that humans are putting in their way that messes up their ability to choreograph their movements with this green wave. So it's it's a tough it's a tough life to be a mule deer, I think. Yeah. You, yeah. You talked about, you said something about um, mule deer catching up to the green wave. And I, I, could you say more about that? I think that's super interesting. How, what, how do they catch up? What maybe keeps them from finding it again? Yeah. So um, 
One thing that's really amazing about mule deer in Wyoming and more generally across the West is that they have extremely high fidelity to the migration routes that they use. So the route that they use one year is most likely the route that they're going to use year in and year out for the rest of their life. And so um, animals kind of have this set path of where they go. But what's really flexible in terms of their behavior is um, when they move along that migration route. Um, so when something like uh, energy development, for example, in the Atlantic Rim occurs at, like in the migratory corridor, this new obstacle results in animals holding up at the edge of the development and they they're not moving through it in the way that they normally did when there was low energy development or no energy development and the green wave moves past them as they're held up at the edge of this disturbance and eventually and many animals um, move through that developed segment and some individuals do eventually catch back up, but others don't. And my research actually hasn't looked at why it is that some individuals catch up and others don't, but that would be a good future research project for maybe um, a, a future researcher in Wyoming. So. <laughs> yeah. Put a, put a sticky note on that one. Yeah. yeah. That'll be a question. Start asking a little more. I, I had a, a question um, as we're touching on this sort of energy development and stopover habitat and surfing the green wave. Um, you know, I, I live in Wyoming and I work in Wyoming politics <laughs> um, and I hear a lot and, and I haven't ever had like maybe the words to say this, like I've known, I've known this, but um, when we talk about animals hold up at the side of one of these like sites or things like that, you know, we're talking it seems like, and correct me if I'm wrong, in the grander sense of like, we're talking about the majority, not individual, every one of them do. Because I hear a lot of politicians that have, um, or, or just like people who work in the oil field or things like that, that say, oh, well, I saw a mule deer walk through an oil field, like this research is wrong. Or I've seen, you know, a mule deer give birth and lay in the shade underneath an oil tank or things like that. Um, and so do you have anything that touches on that? Cause I think we're talking about, we're talking about a population level. We're not talking about individuals. So there will always be individuals that can seem to put up with a little bit more disturbance, but what we're talking about is the level of population to keep a population healthy and going. Am I correct in that? Or, yeah. or do you have any words around that? Can you just yeah, talk a little more on that? For sure. I mean, um, sure animals do move through energy development, but it's not the same as what they, at a population level, what they would do if there wasn't energy development there. But an important way to think about that is those observations of people that are in the oil fields, it, those are anecdotes. They're just one observation. And you're, what you're not observing is what animals would be doing if there was no energy development there. Maybe how many other animals might be using that habitat if it was more natural. And it's important to think about what an anecdote can tell you versus what a 
kind of robust study design that's aimed at trying to understand what's happening at population level, what you're talking about. And an important way to do that is to collect data before development, during, and after. So before gives you a baseline of what animals are doing before this disturbance even occurs. And then during the development, you can see how changes like um, surface disturbance, new roads, new noises, all these other things that animals are not familiar with, how that might alter their behavior. And then after is basically, okay, once all that disturbance is there, but maybe it's being used at a lower level, if animals over time can actually acclimate and adjust to this new environment that um, and these changes that have occurred uh, across their migration route. And so that's the kind of information that you need to know um, if that anecdote reflects what's happening for just the couple random individuals or what's happening at a, at a more population level. Um, and yeah, I think... It's, it's easy a scary to, concept to think about getting that threshold wrong. Yes, definitely. Yeah, and of course, I, I mean, I study these migrations, and I think they're. I'm always amazed at how well animals are basically choreographing their movements and migrations with this dynamic and ever-changing environment. And yeah, I definitely worry about. Um, how things will change if if we don't appreciate the importance of this migratory habitat and the ability of animals to actually freely move across the landscape because this behavior exists for a reason. It's the way that animals make a living in their environment. And um, yeah, so it's... That's a, did your research touch on the carrying capacity that surfing the green wave opens up on landscape and when I say carrying capacity I mean like how many animals or how many mouths a certain landscape can feed um at a healthy in a healthy way to keep a population mm -hmm. going and you know as I understand with mule deer it's you know a fine balance but but I've heard mention and, and that like surfing the green wave and and migration in and of itself um actually allows for Wyoming to have more mule deer um, than than would if migration didn't exist, because we have you know if they if they were just residents they wouldn't be in the mountains because they wouldn't have a place in the winter to be. But so migration allows them to take advantage of the mountainous and green and green up and all of this like sort of summer range, but then leave that in the winter range as as if we didn't have migration, we would just have lowland deer and a much less, or um, am I correct in that? Is that, does it? Yeah. I mean, or, that, or did your research touch that? I should ask. So I didn't um, quantify this directly. It's a ongoing area, active area of research in the Monty shop actually, um, because connecting, um, individual behavior to fitness and demography requires long-term individual-based data. And that's just like a fancy way of saying we still need to collect more data to give a 
to give real accurate numbers to estimate exactly what you're asking is like, what is the contribution to, to supporting higher carrying capacity for animals that migrate versus not. And so um, my research doesn't, didn't touch on that directly, but certainly you can imagine what the, the major differences are for animals that are resident, which I'll note in the Wyoming range is around three to five percent of all individuals. So this is well, not low. Being, do, being resident is not a common behavior because that behavior doesn't really produce much of a benefit. So most animals need to migrate to make a living in this landscape. Um, and that's the case in, in many populations across Wyoming is animals are migrating and they're doing it for a reason. Um, but to kind of get at that question indirectly, ask, um, how does green wave surfing contribute to fat gain of an animal? Because you can measure, um, how fat an animal is and that's, could be a reflection of the quality of the habitat that they're on and the quality of the food that they're gaining access to. And um, there's several um, published and unpublished research, research that will hopefully be coming out soon um, from Wyoming that connects green wave, better green wave surfing to higher fat gain for animals. Um, so there's definitely a link between green wave surfing and greater access to high quality food, which results in animals being fatter and having more reserves to contribute to reproduction, which is the driver of population growth. And that's, you know, what you need to maintain growing or stable populations. So, There's a lot in there yeah. to parse through. You know, I think fat, fat, healthy moms uh, are a key thing to a uh, healthy population, which I think when you look at the hunting sense is what we're all hoping for and wanting, whether we can hunt them or not. Um, you know, you look at the Wyoming range um, in Wyoming is one of our, it's one of the more special mule deer areas, I think, in the country. And um, the fact that only three to 5% of those deer are residents, that's a new thing I did not know. Um, that's, that's what that tells me is that protecting the migrations of these animals, if we want to have the level and the quality of deer that we do right now in the Wyoming range is paramount for a hunter. Yeah, I mean, I would for obviously support special. that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, anyone who loves wildlife and, yeah, appreciates how amazing these migrations are, it in and of itself, that would be an important reason to protect it. But also, it's the way that animals make a living in this landscape. It's the, their survival strategy, and it they're doing it for a reason. Um, so... So I'm curious, you what? talked a little bit about, um, over the course of this conversation, some of the um, uh, threats or challenges that the green wave has to maintain a healthy plant source for mule deer. You mentioned drought. 
connectivity um, and development. Is there anything else that we should be aware of that is important to keep in mind regarding the health of this habitat? Um, yeah, I mean, I think drought and climate change are obviously major um, threats or they at least pose this challenge that will result in the way that the green wave moves across the landscape changing. It It's hard to know what will happen in the future, but there's a lot of suggestion that in water limited systems like Wyoming and many other places across the West, um, drought will become more common and more frequent, more intense. And so this means that the amount of time that spring green up this really important food source that animals use to put on fat and finance the cost of reproduction, um, that that resource will just be diminished and compressed in time. So drought essentially reshuffles and compresses the green wave. And as a result, when deer are migrating along um, their routes, they still follow green up, but they experience it for a lot shorter time. Um, and so that's a major thing that I'm concerned about. Um, and there are other ways that climate change and variability in the weather could alter the, the habitats that animals are using during their migration. Another one, which I don't have a lot of expertise in, is fire and how fire can alter the patterns of green up um, across the migration routes of these animals. And that's certainly something that I think deserves some additional research and consideration. Um, and what then invasive species. Oh like yeah. Cheatgrass. Definitely. I mean, that is a huge one as well. Um, something that again, I haven't looked at directly, but, um, cheatgrass can kind of take a, a very diverse community of plants that might have individual, um, you know, peaks in plant growth at different times throughout the spring and summer, and uh, basically make that landscape a lot more homogeneous. So basically, it's all cheatgrass and cheatgrass just, I mean, I don't even really think that mule deer use this as a main food source but cheatgrass just like greens up and then browns down all yeah. at the same time so there's not there's not a lot of variation in forage growth um, for animals to even select um, plants that are greening up at different times um, so I, mean, I know it's rough even on grazers like agriculture and cattle grazers because it has such a limited amount of time where it's even like has any nutrients to it um I think frankly if I've heard anything it's that the only animal that benefits from cheatgrass is chucker <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, that that sounds I mean, that makes sense to me. Um, yeah, it just takes what could be a very diverse community and can homogenize it so that there's, yeah, this really limited window when there's any nutritious value at all. Um, and that's definitely a major threat and something that people should be thinking about for sure. Homogenizing being that it just, it kind of turns it into a monoculture or an area that's one thing and no diversity or ability to have diversity in it, which I think is critical to a healthy ecosystem. For sure. Yeah. Mm. So fire and invasive species. I think there's all things that are often on our minds to do something about, but we're still struggling with exactly what to do. Yeah. Yeah. And then another one, obviously, is just barriers to movement and trying to minimize those as much as possible or figure out ways to, to connect the landscape. An example of a barrier? Like, well, are, are you thinking roads? Or? There's so many different ways to think about barriers. So a barrier could either be something that completely just cuts off the ability of animals to move through a landscape, um, which could be something like uh, a highway interstate, um, like interstate I-80, like not a lot of animals move across that. Um, I mean, maybe some really crazy animals might, but that's a major barrier that you could basically say is not permeable, meaning that animals can't move through it. But there are a lot of barriers that are could be classified as semi-permeable, which are things that animals can move through, but might alter their behavior. So their ability to surf the green wave or alter their vigilance behavior or other things. Um, and these barriers, just because animals can actually pass through them doesn't mean that they're not still a threat to the ability of animals to make a living by migrating. So the example of energy development is one where animals are holding up at the edge of development and then speeding through that developed segment of the route. And so that's an altered behavior as animals encounter a semi-permeable barrier um, that actually ends up reducing the foraging benefit of migration, but animals have to cross. I, I'm not exactly sure how many fences, but it has to be on the magnitude of 10 to 100 fence crossings along their migration. Um, or for a population like along their migration corridor, there's so many fences of all different types that animals have to move through. And maybe jumping over one fence is no big deal, but when you have to do it over and over and over again and figure out how to navigate through that, that's something that, you know, could potentially be an issue as well. Um, thinking about energy or um, residential development either, even um, roads obviously are a major barrier, um, but roads are something that can be mitigated fairly easily by um, creating over underpasses at um, major bottlenecks in the migration that move across um, roads. 
So yeah, Wyoming I know has had a hugely successful one in Tramp Trappers Point, um, which was an overpass put in I think for antelope movement, and it's been upwards of like high 80s and into the 90s percent successful in uh, limiting wildlife collisions on roadways and and giving and opening up this sort of uh, corridor again so that these animals can continue their movements with less stress of worrying about getting smacked by a vehicle. And, you know, it's a win-win situation because we have less stress about smacking something with a vehicle. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's just a that's a great example of a success story. And I think to really try to understand what are the myriad of barriers and threats that animals face during their migration, the first step is simply mapping where are those migrations, where are the corridors for the Wyoming range population of mule deer or the Red Desert to Hoback, and just mapping those and putting that on a map so that you can see all of the different um, land ownerships that the deer are moving through, putting on a, a, a fence layer. So basically in GIS, like the all the spatial information about where fences are and where roads are and see, okay, how many times do, does a deer have to cross a road or a fence um, that we know of, of those roads and fences that are actually mapped that we have data on, where are there bottlenecks, where there might be a giant lake and then like a really steep um, topography where they're all funneled through an area. And if that really small bottleneck is slated for development, that could be a major threat. So it's a first step in trying to understand what are the barriers that animals face is simply just trying to put those migration corridors on on a map. And th- that's something that um, has been a huge effort by the Wyoming Migration Initiative. Um, and I think it's led to a lot of really great success stories in identifying these threats and working with different stakeholders to um, to mitigate that. I mean, it's, I I would say migration and, and your research with this green wave has been something that has sparked a, a like pretty incredible policy wave that has come after it. I think it's a great success story of where science has informed policy. And obviously we're still in the middle of it, but you know, Wyoming's governor early this year signed a executive order around migration And Wyoming is going a long ways into formally identifying, which is a big deal because that means that then it is written in policy that this migration exists and we have to be careful of it in these places and where we can put development where we can't. It's wrestling with these land ownership things. Um, But I think it's an incredible success story of where science has informed policy and, and, you know, it hasn't finished yet. We can still mess this up policy-wise. but but it's it's become this thing where everyone in Wyoming has at least heard of migration. And I can say that everyone in Wyoming is thinking about wildlife crossings now, and that wildlife crossings being the overpasses and underpasses that you're talking about. Um, it, it's giving the individual human something to do to help wildlife. And I think when you live in the West or anywhere, really, and you just care about wildlife, having those 
things to do individually are super helpful. So looking at like attending your city councils and your county commissioner meetings to hear about development in areas and how your city zoning happens. Um, you know, is it going to be going into stopover habitats or, you know, turns out animals like the same places people do because they're the lush, nice places to live. Um, I think the invasive species comment is, is looking at how we fix and work with cheatgrass. Um, and then I think majorly so wildlife crossings, you know, here in Wyoming, we know the problem, we know where they're at, we just need the funding. So finding the dollars there to donate um, is, is a major, a major thing. And, and I think a lot of places are starting to look at it. Colorado has wildlife crossings. I'm pretty certain Montana does too. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, it's just finding those places to plug in. And, and uh, your research has been such a juggernaut for policy. Um, and I think it's really exciting because I'm, I'm in the policy realm of stuff here in Wyoming and everything you're talking about. I mean, I hear inside the state legislature, I hear in the governor's office, I hear in leadership of the Game and Fish, I hear the Game and Fish Commission talk about it's, it's, it's been heard and it, it's, um, it's been challenged because a lot of times I think people are, are, you know, like the question of like, well, I see deer next to an oil well, that means, you know, they move through it fine. <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. But I think it's really incredible what you've done and and to see it go where it's going. Um, one, I'm just humbled to talk with you and have you on here, but uh, oh, it, thank it's you. very much on the policy level. Thank you. Thank you for being the science that has informed good decisions. And thank you to our governor, Governor Gordon, at least here in Wyoming, for making and hearing it. And I think... Uh, I would add to that that I think the Wyoming Migration Initiative in particular has really set the stage for a national approach uh, to research mm-hmm. and to identif- and identifying migration routes, and I think that's fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. This is a hugely collaborative process, and I feel lucky to have done my PhD in the Monty shop and in the Wyoming co-op unit as part of the Wyoming Migration Initiative. And there's so many amazing minds that are working on this puzzle of yeah, what is the science of why migration is important? How do we map these migrations? And then how do we integrate the science into actual policy and providing tools that are actually useful for managers so they can understand how to go from GPS points from a collar to a corridor map and how to integrate that into planning. And yeah, it's amazing. And it's it's been really rewarding as a PhD student to be part of this larger vision and effort. And it's really like a researcher's dream come true to work so hard and spend, yeah, five or six years of your life trying to figure out this puzzle that for a lot of people is super esoteric and might not connect to anything in the real world. And so being able to do research that does connect to real world issues um, is so rewarding. And it's something that I'm so happy to be a part of. We're going we're gonna to pause to take a quick break and hear a word from our sponsor. We will be right back. Howdy, Artemis listeners. This is Aaron Kindle from NWF Outdoors. We know you love awesome conservation conversations. That's why we want to invite you to check out the NWF Outdoors podcast, where we dive deep into the issues, 
people and places that showcase the best of the sporting conservation lifestyle. Guests include leaders, luminaries, and decision makers who define conservation and work tirelessly for fish and wildlife. Check it out wherever you get your podcasts or at nwfoutdoors.org. All right, welcome back. I've been sitting here with the uh, Migration Atlas open as you're talking. Um, and, um, of course you have. Right open. It's, of course I have. For those of you that don't know, the Wyoming Migration Initiative put out an incredible comprehensive coffee table book called Wild Migration, Atlas of Wyoming's Ungulates. You can usually find it online. Um, and it's a great overview of the beginnings of everything that we're finding out. Um, and I just like what we were talking about before the break, you know, talking about all of these voices coming together um, and informing, I mean, it's science from every level, from your science and your research, Ellen, about the green wave and, and you know, the, the choreography that these different ungulates have around it. We've talked a lot about mule deer on it, but I was curious, um, was your focus mostly on mule deer or did you, were you looking at a lot of different animals on the green wave or were you sort of looking only on the population of mule deer um, with GPS collars and, and looking at their reaction to it? So um, the, the vast majority of my research was focused on the Wyoming range mule deer herd. Um, but one of my PhD chapters was a more multi-species um, synthetic analysis, I guess you would call it, which um, integrated data from mule deer and elk across all um, many places across uh, Western North America. So um, Idaho, Montana, Wyoming, BC, Alberta, and then I um, also was able to utilize some data from Europe on the movements of roe deer and red deer to um, evaluate how common green wave surfing is across um, two different continents and vastly different um, species and systems and to try to understand and predict um, if we can uh, estimate where green wave surfing and migration should occur based off of the, the wave-like pattern of spring green up in these vastly different landscapes. So this analysis um, led to a result verifying that migration and green wave surfing is favored in environments where green up is very fleeting but moves consecutively across large landscapes. And when you think about a real world example of what that actually means, Wyoming is a perfect example of it because green up is really fleeting. Wyoming is brown most of the year <laughs> and like everyone that lives in Wyoming can relate to the, the experience of seeing green up occur in the spring and even in July, things are browning down in a lot of places where, where Wyomingites live. And so when you think of like fleeting spring green up, that's Wyoming. When you think about green up moving across land, large landscapes, that's Wyoming. It goes from the, the plains to the, mount, to the mountains. And when you think of 
uh, consecutive green up. That's Wyoming because it's these elevational gradients. So um, yeah, so this this big data project where I was comparing kind of patterns of green up across all these different systems led to this result that um, we can kind of predict and understand where green wave surfing should occur and where it should be favored and that green wave surfing leads to the emergence of migration. And so we can kind of quantify patterns of green up to understand where, where migration and green wave surfing should be, where that should be the predominant, most beneficial movement strategy. And this can help us understand how animal movement might change in really vastly changing environments. So if patterns of green up um, are altered in such a significant way where green up is more prolonged, then maybe animals don't have to move as much to seek out that fleeting spring green up. Mm -hmm. And that's the case in many places across Europe where green up just lasts a, a lot longer um, at a single point on the landscape. So um, yeah, I, I have done some research that looks at this more broadly across um, other species. And I'll just note that elk also surf the green wave. So <laughs> <laughs> it, this is also really important for elk. And, and there's evidence of green wave surfing and many other species of ungulates that are common across the West. So bighorn sheep and moose. Um, so yeah, I, I think it's likely a general phenomenon for a lot of ungulate species that live in these environments where green up is really fleeting and you have to move across the landscape to track that important food resource. Where were the uh, models that you were looking at, sort of European models with roe deer? Um, like what, what, what country were they in? Um, oh. I'm curious because I think it's we always focus on American conservation because we're you know we're in the United States and things like that but but I always think it's fascinating when you're like you have to remember that oh my gosh like deer in other countries and mm -hmm. and and continents are are doing similar things because it's a mechanism that works oh yeah for sure so um the populations that I was working with um, had data from Norway, Sweden, Germany, Italy, France, Belgium. I'm sure I'm leaving out a couple of other countries, but um, I had data from a, a large portion of Europe. So that mm. data came from um, Eurodeer, which is a collaborative group of ungulate ecologists across Europe that um, pools and shares their data so that they can address research questions using GPS collar data and other data that they're collecting um, across different populations to see how general different um, phenomena are. And it's a really powerful approach that's becoming more and more common in scientific research because we have this data and to some extent it can be standardized and compared across systems. And you can learn a lot by doing that. And research is becoming more collaborative and it allows us to answer these bigger questions about 
not just is green wave surfing important in the Wyoming range muleer population, but where should green wave surfing and migration occur across temperate systems? Um, so yeah, it's a really exciting time to, to be a movement ecologist and to be <laughs> studying animal migration. So yeah. So we're, Jess, do you have it? We're going to start to wind down, but do you have any last questions that you want to ask before we do that? I do. Okay. I have a burning last question. Do it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I, I'm curious, you know, you talk about the, the satellites and, and, and how you, you know, tracking the green wave. Are there places in the world, um, and, and, and likely this question is Wyoming specific because that's where a lot of your research was focused, but I, my intent is to open this up for larger than a state of Wyoming issue. Are there places that you think that are green wave surfable that we're no longer seeing populations of deer or we don't know of populations of deer surfing it? Um, this is sort of the question of like, is it possible that there's a lot of country out there that's not being utilized because at some point along the line, we messed up a migration and we put a barrier up that we didn't realize um, stopped it? Yeah, I mean, that's definitely the next logical step of the research that I was describing to you. The idea is to be able to maybe map across all temperate systems or even maybe across the globe migration potential. So where migration should be favored in different places. And then you can look within those systems. Why is that not happening is it because, yeah, maybe the model is not working or perhaps it's because there's a lot of barriers so animals can't actually move across the landscape or perhaps there's a lot of food subsidies from humans that allows animals to eat a lot of great alfalfa and they don't need to migrate anymore because they're utilizing this human uh, produced anth like anthropogenic food source that's all actually altering the behavior of animals. Um, so that's something that's a important next step for my research. And I would imagine other people who are thinking about these kinds of questions. Um, and it's a, like I said, it's a super exciting time to be thinking about these questions because we're getting to the point where people are collecting data about the movement of animals, uh, ungulates um, across the entire globe. So people aren't just tracking mule deer in Wyoming, people are tracking Mongolian gazelles and um, all kinds of diverse species that are similar to deer that likely have a similar um are keying in on similar things like spring green up and we can try to understand where this behavior is occurring and also where it should occur but maybe where it's not because of um changes in the environment oh that was that was just perfect <laughs> Oh. All of this has been perfect. I, I have like 900 other burning questions, but I'll, uh, I think that is a really great sort of next steps and, and concluding sort of there. Um, 
I'm, this is incredible. You're, uh, thank you. <laughs> oh, thank you. I'm, it was really fun to chat with you. And um, yeah, obviously, this is something I really care a lot about. And it's great to be able to talk to um, your listeners and share my research. And it's a great opportunity. I'm so happy to, to be able to chat with you guys. Ellen, is there anything you wanted to mention about your research that we haven't covered yet? Um, I mean, I think we're, that's, I think we hit a lot of the big picture points. Um, I would also just mention that I'm working on a couple of, um, other things that are, um, related to basically how animals, it's not just the the movement of animals that are so finely tuned to their environments, but it's also um, the timing of important events like when animals give birth. So um, one recent um, research project that I worked on actually showed um, that I'm working on publishing right now um, in collaboration with the Monty Shop and um, a bunch of people who work on the Wyoming Range Muleer Project, including um, management folks like Gary Fralick um, and, and Jill Randall and others, um, showed that actually these longer distance migrants give birth later. So um, this is so that they can surf the green wave and accrue that exposure to spring green up and gain that fat and then use it to um, to finance the costs of reproduction and that it's not just the movement behaviors that are finely tuned to the landscape, but it's a whole reproductive physiology and reproductive kind of life cycle of animals that are fine tuned to the environment. So it might be more complicated than we think when we think about how um, animals adapt to changes in their environment. Often people just think that they, that animals can change where they go, but there's all these other um, kind of physiological things that occur that help the animal match its, its movements and its life history strategy, basically. So how it makes a living in a landscape to the environment. And so, um, yeah, it's definitely going to be something that I want to continue to understand and research um, in the future. But um, that's just another taste of the next interesting questions to think about is what beyond just changing behavior. But yeah, some, it's kind of like these animals are matching not just their movement, but their whole reproductive life cycle to their environment. And so when you mess up where they're moving and where they're going, there'll be downstream effects where maybe animal can't migrate farther and it ends up in a different habitat and gives birth much later because it was planning on going to a higher elevation summer range, but it's now at low elevation and that just really doesn't make sense for that environment. This is obviously a hypothetical toy example, but these are all things to think about um, when it comes to 
not just how animals are choreographing their movement to the environment, but the whole strategy of how to make a living in the environment. Turns That's out everything's connected. <laughs> right? Yeah. 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 <laughs> Ellen, thank you so much. This was a fascinating conversation. Um, and I wasn't joking when I said we could go on for uh, several more hours. So maybe we'll have you back at another time <laughs> and we can dig yeah. into it a little bit more. Marcia, yeah. I don't know about you, but every, every one of these podcasts, and this is only the second one, I have this distinct feeling that I think um, other people get when they talk to like celebrities they really <laughs> like and care about. Uh, I feel like learning this and hearing about this from the mouths of the people who are doing the research on the ground and not only just the people, but these really strong, amazing women, um, is pretty dang special. Um, and for those of you listening, it's pretty dang special to have this many incredible women in one place talking about research. Um, so support those female scientists out there. Second, thank you so much. Yeah. <laughs> I can't top that, Jess. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah. it's also great as a scientist to work with so many other amazing women researchers that are both super strong role models for me and colleagues, and it just makes the process of doing science easier when there's other people in the same place as you that, yeah, you can relate to and can look up to and um yeah it's I think it's a really important part of of science is having a community that um in some ways you feel like you can be part of because it um it reflects who you are or there's at least people who um you can see yourself in Mm -hmm. uh, yeah I'm maybe not saying that the most elegant way but um, yeah, it's, 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 a, it's the same it's, in the hunting community. Yeah. You know, I think if you have to see sometimes to find the community, like the community has to reflect you. Um, and it's been a shortfall of the hunting community a lot. And I would argue it's also been a shortfall of the scientific community and it's changing. Um, albeit yeah. never fast enough, but, uh, thanks for being part of that change. Of course. Yeah. I also have a lot of people to thank who helped it be possible for me to even have a have a spot doing this research so yeah it's 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 cool and it's nice to see a, a environment where so many strong female researchers can thrive and um, feel welcome and that's um, really important and um, I'm really thankful for you both of you for giving um, us a platform to talk about our research and share our research with a more broad community. So yeah, thank you. Well, we're happy pleasure. to share. It's entirely selfish on Mars' <laughs> part. We just like to talk to you. It's true. <laughs> awesome. Well, Ellen, thank you so much for your time. Um, this yeah, was wonderful and I appreciate you. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you. Uh, To our listeners, thank you for joining us for the second episode of our collaborative series with the Monteith Shop. If you would like to learn more about this passionate group, their exciting work, and even support their efforts, please go to ungulatecompendium.org. Also, keep up to date on their activities and get exposed to interesting facts about ungulates by connecting with them through their social media handle at monteith.shop. That's M-O-N-T-E-I-T-H. Shop. If you have more questions on Ellen's research, shoot us an email, artemis at nwf.org. 
Thanks for joining us this week on the Artemis Podcast. Until next week, be bold, stay curious, and get outside.